0: Welcome once again to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review Podcast. I am your host, the greatest living American writer, a Rotten Tomatoes-approved film critic, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. You can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. And, you know, I've been editing this site for three years now, and this has been my favorite week Period of all my time at the site. We've covered lots and lots of interesting things. There's been some fun coverage of the New York Film Festival and New York Comic Con, but also lots of issues related stuff. We've talked about censorship and cancel culture, the Israeli Palestinian conflict, which isn't something we usually go into, the COVID policy response, and all through the lens of books and films and TV shows that are talking about these issues. So it's been a great week, and I hope you check out the site. We've had so many terrific articles this week. We're going to talk this week to Sharon Vane about censorship, as we often do. Michael Welch is going to be in here to talk about the controversial new Dave Chappelle special on Netflix. And Greg Ford is going to stop by to talk about the terrific Netflix drama, Made, which has been getting not quite as much attention as Squid Game, but enough. It's still the number two show on Netflix, which is pretty good. And we're going to lead off this week with Robert Palmer singing, Doctor, Doctor, Give Me the News, I've Got a Bad Case of Loving You, which is how a lot of people feel about Dr. Anthony Fauci. The subject of a new documentary that we covered on the site this week, and after a little musical interlude, we're going to talk about it with Matt Brown, the author of the review.
1: Doctor, doctor, give me the news, I've got it.
0: talking to Matt Brown, a first-time Book and Film Globe contributor. He wrote a review of a documentary of sorts on Disney Plus about Dr. Anthony Fauci. His review has been a real success. Matt, hello. Hi, Neil.
2: Good to talk to you today.
0: Yeah. So uh, Fauci is just a, kind of a ludicrous hagiography hey, of, of Anthony Fauci. It's not a, an objective documentary about, about his career and his COVID policies.
2: Yeah, I I think you could say that it is definitely geared towards an audience, which is already going to be very favorably disposed to him. And it doesn't really bring us an awful lot of new details on exactly what he does in his work every day. You basically, you've got Fauci on one side and at the beginning of the movie, very opening minute or two, you've got Anthony Fauci saying a lot of people don't like me. And the reason why they don't like me is because I tell them the truth. And that kind of sets the stage for every interaction that you see from there forward, where you have Fauci on one side, and then you've got some credentialed defenders of Fauci, and then you've got uh, his antagonists who in this are mostly depicted off of quick, sound bites that were recorded from Fox News. Nothing really goes into a whole lot of detail on either side, but Fauci, obviously he's got his family. It's very sympathetic to him. Um, It's not horribly made, but it's geared towards an audience that's favorable to him.
0: I should mention that I met Matt uh, through an online discussion group of, uh, I would say, COVID skeptics that we're part of. Now, I'm not a skeptic of, of COVID itself. I understand that it's a real disease. And I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm very happily vaccinated and all that. My skepticism is about COVID policies, about uh, social distancing and about lockdowns and about masking. And, you know, I was looking for someone to not do a takedown of Anthony Fauci. You can find those in any any publication that's slightly right of center. But just to look at this movie somewhat objectively. And, uh, you know, it sounds to me like the film is is almost like state propaganda,
2: yeah, I think that it, in some ways you could say that. And I wanted to watch it, even though you pretty much laid out here what our views are on the pandemic. And and really, as you made clear, the response to the pandemic in, in general. I am not somebody who's going to say COVID is not real. Of course, it's very real. A lot of people have gotten sick and, and died from it. I, like you, am also vaccinated. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm a little bit skeptical now of exactly how well they've worked as of what they were originally advertised as, But you said propaganda and there's a lot of potential controversies with Fauci, uh, such as his reversal on masks at the beginning of the pandemic, where a lot of people have seen the famous CNN clip from the beginning of March 2020, when this was just sort of becoming news. Uh, Actually, no, it's not CNN, I'm sorry, 60 Minutes, where he was asked about this and said, there's no reason to wear a mask. It might block a droplet, but it's really not providing the type of protection you think it is. And he did one on that. Uh, The documentary goes into a lot of detail on his work in the AIDS crisis and I'm a little bit too young to Remember that very clearly. I remember AIDS. I can't remember Fauci's role in the 80s, but he was a bit of a lightning rod and a very, very controversial figure, and, and remains to this day, uh, particularly in the LGBT community. And that is not mentioned in the movie at all. The mask 180 is mentioned very briefly, but it takes his explanation at face value that well, I thought we might have a problem with supply for the healthcare workers. And it goes entirely unquestioned. So there are all these instances like this. The response to the pandemic, interestingly, is gone into virtually no detail at all. But the that's word... the whole
0: story. That's the whole story. Like what well, we wouldn't even know about Dr. Anthony Fauci if it hadn't been for the way he drove the response to the pandemic and was sort of the the spokesman. You know, he was portrayed by Brad Pitt on Saturday Night Live as being the savior <laughs> of America. I mean, he's not a, Anthony Fauci is a perfectly nice looking man, but he's not Brad Pitt.
2: <laughs> no. And, uh, you know, I I'm about equally to Brad Pitt as Fauci and I'm a little closer to Brad Pitt than age than Fauci is. So maybe cast me as cast Brad Pitt as me on SNL. But yes. I don't remember and I should have taken a note of this. The word lockdown may not have been mentioned through the entire documentary, which I, it's a it's a full length feature film. It's an hour and a half and they do not go into detail of exactly what policies Fauci caused, which is which is extremely odd. It's well done in that regard, which it's, it's like a piece of filmmaking jujitsu because you watch an hour and a half of this and then you come away from it. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, what did I just watch? They didn't go into that many details and they had plenty of time. It was very interesting.
0: But I think that this is something that we're going to have to deal with uh, going forward. Those of us who, you know, are on the sort of COVID policy skeptic train, we're going to have to deal with a lot of reminiscences and documentaries and articles that that don't question the response and whether or not it was effective, whether or not it actually saved lives or if it actually hurt more people than it helped. And I'm not, you know, there are there's arguments to be made on both sides of this, but I am not one to not question it. I would like a nice Like there was that turning point. There was that documentary about nine eleven on that aired on Netflix. That was very even handed in the way it dealt with the war on terror, the response to nine eleven. You know, I'd like to see something similar about COVID. That kind of takes. Maybe we're we're still in the middle of it. Who knows? But this is not the answer. I mean, did Fauci pay for this himself? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think so. I think Disney's probably got plenty of cash to bankroll it. I would assume they have more money than even NA, NIH does where Fauci works, but
0: Well that's another that's another thing. The uh, National Institutes of Health, where Fauci works, funded the Wuhan lab where the virus was quite possibly created, where it might have possibly escaped from. We don't know the full story yet, um, but it's certainly within the realm of legitimate opinion now being voiced by the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and Jon Stewart uh, that, that Fauci may have had a financial hand in the creation of the virus That he's been, you know, trying to present himself as the public face of preventing. So I'm guessing this movie doesn't go into that.
2: No, no, it does not. It does not go into that at all. It doesn't even show any of his prominent tense exchanges with Senator Rand Paul over this either. And I think that's probably for a very deliberate reason. Uh, but yeah, that's absolutely right. That's, an, that's another topic that the movie doesn't go into. As, as far as what you said, it's interesting. I absolutely agree that there needs to be a fair assessment of this. And I just don't think that we're in a point in time right now where it's possible because it's unfortunate. Everything has to be a, pol- a political lightning rod today in America a pandemic where it's a virus. Nobody likes a virus. We all wanted to defeat it. And so it's just a very sad commentary on where we are that this has become, of all things, such a political issue. And I think the recriminations and the honest assessments of what happened are unfortunately going to be quite a number of years away.
0: I, for one, have very little interest in having these kinds of arguments, and yet I find myself having them every day, if only with myself sometimes. But, you know, like like I was saying to you earlier uh, before we started talking, I've lost friends and acquaintances because I've questioned the efficacy of masks and because I've said, your children aren't going to die, it's okay because I don't think social distancing is really is a good idea or effective. That we, as I've said all along, we shouldn't have closed movie theaters, other than maybe for the first couple of weeks while we were thinking about what was going on. Shouldn't have closed restaurants, all that. There shouldn't have been lockdowns. But the I, the fact that I uh, that even expressing that opinion is controversial is is very frustrating to me.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And something something I've thought of increasingly in recent days is that. What did what did we actually do here? What is the life that we're living? Is it it's not just counting time that we're here on Earth, but what makes your life rich is the experience is the memories that you generate over time what are we, what are we doing? It's not something where in my mind, some of this comes from the fact that I'm myself, I'm a cancer survivor. I overcame cancer 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. And what that did, and it took me a number of years to realize this, what my experience gave me is it made me think that it's, I just have this visceral aversion to wasting time. And so that is something that just hit me at a gut level when we started this. And even before all the data was in, to me, it was just, no, this is something that you don't do unless you're really, really sure you have to. Mortgaging experiences—how many, how many life experiences of people uh, have been forfeited, and we, we will never know.
0: Yeah, and in my case, you know, I, I've been working at home for the last 30 years, so staying home all day—I'm no stranger to it. But I don't like being forced to do it by the government. I don't like being—I don't like being told what to do. Yep. There's a limit to the control the government should have over our lives, to say the least. And you know, this whole thing has just been been a real mess. Although it has clarified the way I look at the world in in very important ways. But doesn't sound like Fauci, the documentary, is is going to provide that service for me.
2: No, I don't think so. I think uh, Fauci, the documentary, to, to sum up, I think if you like Fauci, you will like it. If you don't like Fauci, it will be a more difficult experience to watch it. In the end, I'm not going to say that it's not the worst thing that's ever been made, but it is somewhat propagandistic. And uh, you're going to take away from it uh, what you expected to when you come into the experience, unless you're just coming in as a blank slate. I don't think a lot of us are. And shortly after you view it, you're not going to have a lot of vivid memories about what went on. Because, again, unfortunately, it doesn't really dig into all that much detail.
0: Uh, So, Matt, I have to ask, you know, according to Fauci's advice, that we may not be able to celebrate uh, the holidays with our families here. I I take it that you're
2: not taking that advice. (laughs) no no we're 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 not taking that advice we are we are healthy. We have been living as normally as possible since the beginning of all this, and uh we will have uh happy Thanksgiving with our family. We will celebrate christmas we will celebrate new year's uh no worries here uh no I've, we were I've, taking- I've told my
0: I've told my wife that I don't feel safe traveling to her mother's for Christmas, but she doesn't believe me.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm, I, 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 she
0: might be very astute. I'm 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 I, I keep laying that line out there and I'm just, I'm just not, get, I'm not getting it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe if I start acting really afraid now, in mid October,
2: <laughs> I might be able to buy myself a, a break for Christmas. All right, just say, no, it's, it's not for me. It's for them. I'm, I'm caring for them, protecting them. So.
0: Dr. Yeah. Fauci says, Dr. Fauci says, she's like oh now now you like him all right anyway matt matt brown thank you so much for talking to me i hope you can write for us again soon
2: all right sounds good thanks a lot neil my pleasure
0: I've noticed a trend in my social media of parents being very concerned about pedophilia. And now while parents should be, I guess, concerned about pedophilia, they're mostly concerned about it as it relates to how it's being portrayed in literature. And people who I would not necessarily assume to have censorship mindsets are suddenly um, speaking out against books that contain depictions of what they're calling pedophilia, but aren't actually pedophilia. It's a lot of controversy. Sharon Vane is here to talk about it. and She wrote about it on the site this week. Hello, Sharon.
3: Hello, thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm sorry that we're always here talking about people's uh views of books they want to get rid of. And in this case particularly, it's bizarre even by censorship standards.
0: Yeah, and it's but it's well, we're talking about it because it's happening. Like there, there seems to be a, a disconnect uh among conservatives and increasingly liberals um, about uh, what it what's the difference between inappropriate behavior and depictions of stuff they don't like in literature. And so you wrote about a couple of cases this week, um, both of which involve, uh, I would say right wing parents um, trying to get books shut down in school districts. Maybe you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, well, what's really um, interesting about these two particular books, um, Jonathan Evison's Lawn Boy and Ashley Hope Perez's Out of Darkness, is that both of these are books that are popping up all around the country and the complaints are the same. In Lawnboy's case, as you mentioned, folks are saying this promotes pedophilia, and how dare you as a school board have this book? Oh, my child brought this book home, and has pedophilia. So I can understand how if you're a parent, you hear that word, you think, wow, is that a book I should be concerned about? But when you open the book and read it, it's 100 percent clear that there is no pedophilia in this book. There are there is an instance of the main character who's 22, remembering a time when he was in elementary school and fooled around with another boy. And, um, you know, they did have sexual contact. But that's not what pedophilia is. Um However, that's not stopping folks who want to rid it from uh, libraries and schools. And this week, I talked with both of the authors about what it's like to be at the center of a bunch of arguments that don't have anything to do with your book and are really turning ugly and vitriolic. Both of these authors have gotten death threats. They're seeing things come into their messages, telling them they should hang themselves. They... Should be, you know, eradicated from the earth. Just this really awful um, sorts of uh, of messages that they're getting about things that aren't even true.
0: And what's the case with Ashley Hope Perez's book? That's not even they're not even talking about sexual content in that book.
3: Well, it's so interesting. There was a video that maybe some of our listeners have seen because it certainly uh, went so viral. It ended up on Jimmy Kimmel. A woman in Lake Travis school district, which is just west of Austin. Um, former school board candidate has, you know, been on the news before uh, for a variety of outcries. She took to the school board mic to talk about how this book promoted anal sex. And in maybe thirty to forty five seconds, she must have said the phrase anal sex ten times and about how she doesn't want this to be promoted. What actually happens in the book is that uh, there's a mexican American girl who moves to a new town and, In this town in the 30s, there were schools for white and white passing kids and schools for black kids. And she goes to the white school and she hears just this onslaught of what, you know, just nasty insults and things that people want to do to her because they can tell that she's Mexican-American. And there's one word reference to cornhole. And this parent looked it up, discovered it referred to anal sex, and she was off to the races, even though... Even if you don't read the whole book, even if all you do is read that chapter, it's clear that this book is not promoting anal sex in any way, shape or form.
0: Right. It's just describing the fact that teenagers sometimes talk about it. I mean, you have teenagers. I have a teenager. You know what kids talk about? Come on. You know, and and it's like uh, I just don't understand. Like, I feel like this is a – an extension of there's a lot of there's a battle going on right now about what should be taught in schools you know there's a debate between should we teach critical race theory or should we teach critical race theory and you know there's a, a struggle between the 1776 project and the 1619 project and these are all ideological fights that are that are playing out but then you've got novels ordinary uh, and well received novels young adult novels getting caught in the crossfire and getting banned um, for for incredibly prudish reasons, you know that that, seem, that have nothing to do with the larger debates, and it just it drives me crazy that parents um, hear these sort of key words, you know these, you know these people our age or even younger, and it's frustrating to me that they're they're so square.
1: <laughs>
3: Well, I think they they think oh has it has it gone too far you know and I think that these attacks are designed to elicit that kind of reaction. You know, there is no coincidence that these two books have been at the heart of multiple challenges in multiple districts across the country. I mean, this is, you know, these two books were challenged in Texas but they're also challenged in Ohio, they're challenged in Virginia. They're, you know, challenged in many other places and there's kind of a conservative parent playbook that will lay it out you know here's the page the cornhole appears on and this is what you should you know reference but who's,
0: coordinating, I, who's coordinating this is there some uh, phyllis schlafly like character who's like sending out the memo i mean it just it, it's bizarre to me and it's also i mean it is uh, this is conservative driven but i've seen very concerned liberal parents also saying i don't want the schools teaching pedophilia to
3: my kids i'm like yeah well Right. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Of course. Do we want the schools teaching pedophilia to our kids? We absolutely do not, but this not, is actually not, not what's to. going on here. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I think you make a really great point that This is something I think it can be easy for more left-leaning or more progressive parents um, to think, oh, book banning that happens to 1984, that happens to To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, those kinds of classic novels that always get sort of held up as this example and maybe even a more recent example of Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. Well, that was such a blockbuster that people can try and ban it, but it's still gonna get attention, it's still gonna sell, it's still gonna do really fine. These two books, critically acclaimed, both award-winning, it's easy for parents who aren't as familiar with these books to kind of take those talking points and think, should I be concerned? Um, I, I think, you know, one of the things that um, Ashley Perez brings up in our story is that this is also an issue where school boards are entertaining these discussions. So it isn't a situation where the parent goes to the school and says, this book's about pedophilia. And at the school level, they say, it's actually not. It's not in the curriculum. You don't have to read it. But we're not going to take away the access for everyone to read it who might want to read this book just because you made one complaint. Instead, what we're seeing in certain places if somebody goes to the podium makes a big fuss and then the book gets pulled while they do a review process which you know who knows how long that's going to take so it, it's a worrisome trend
0: yeah and you know and school boards are made up of parents so uh, for the most part so you know it it's uh, it's not it's not that surprising and it is extremely worrisome you know and, and i guess like i don't, i feel like parents should be just grateful that their kids are reading you know, I, I don't I don't quite get I just don't quite get the concern. I mean, because given all the media and anything that kids can be exposed to, the fact that they're actually sitting down and reading a novel of any kind, even if it's uh, you know, fifty shades of gray. I'd be fine with it. I would be thrilled to see my son uh, sitting on the couch reading Lawn Boy. You know, that's
3: exactly what librarians say. I mean, people who are experts in reading, they're like, whatever they're reading, it's good. Are they reading magazines? Great. Are they listening to audiobooks? Awesome. Are they reading, you know, Diary of a Wimpy Kid 15 times? Tremendous. You know, we want to just keep them reading. And honestly, I question in most of these cases, did these kids really bring this book home? I I mean, maybe they did in the first case, but I, I can't believe that all over this you know, great land of ours, Teenagers are going, you know, checking out like Lawn Boy and Out of yeah. Darkness and then coming to their parents and saying, I am scarred emotionally from this experience.
0: Lawn Boy Mania, is it on TikTok? Then it, then they're not doing it en masse. So <laughs> um, and I, I, one more point I wanted, I wanted to make, you know, I, I assume you read Catcher in the Rye back yeah. in the day or even more recently. I don't know when, you know, I don't remember the last time I read Catcher in the Rye. But there's a scene where Holden Caulfield is molested by a teacher
3: sure and nobody you know is out there you know wanting to i mean back in the day sure but what is so interesting is that um there's so many books i mean you could describe romeo and juliet as like two teens defy their parents in a suicide pact i mean certainly you know i think many authors who have been the subject of uh you know banning attacks have brought up the bible as an example of you know, you can pull you know, passages out of that that are really sort of out there depending on, you know, how you interpret it. And it's interesting to see how the parents who are complaining about books are choosing passages that are sexually themed, that are very much dealing with characters who might be homosexual, characters who are questioning, um, the language they're using that's so inflammatory, you know, filth pornography, pedophilia, those are kind of trigger words that are going to raise everybody's attention. And as you say, like, have I read every single book my kid is assigned or, you know, reads in the house? I have not, you know, And, and parents who don't take the time to take a look and dig a little deeper on this could easily be fooled by a few loud voices
0: yeah in general, I tend to ignore the parental voices that are screaming filth and pornography they're, they're, those those are the kinds of fuss budgets who we've been making fun of our whole lives and i'm not gonna I'm not gonna turn into one of them now. God damn it,
3: that's right. well, you know you and I can vow that. I will not be fooled by someone yelling filth um, on, on Facebook.
0: Well, if someone's yelling filth on Facebook, my first instinct is to check out the filth. So right. <laughs> once again, we have stood up against censorship and we, we interviewed the authors. I was like, I was like, you know what? Let's talk to these people because I, I somehow I doubt that Jonas, Jonathan Evison is promoting porno- uh, pedophilia and pornography in his book. I'm just I'm just I'm just guessing.
3: Absolutely. And it was nice to be able to feature more of them, um, more of their thought process. You know, we haven't seen this in other stories, maybe a comment here, a comment there. But, um, you know, this was truly a chance for them to kind of expound on what they were really trying to do in their books. And then some of the really unfortunate um, pushback that they've gotten. So I encourage folks to read the story.
0: Yeah. And we'll keep interviewing those filth purveyors on Book and Film Globe. So thank thank you. I'm
3: here for it.
0: All right. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Dave Chappelle is back in the news. Boy, is he ever back in the news. He is really in the news right now. Uh, he has a new comedy special called The Closer on Netflix, and it is generating a ton of criticism and controversy as well as praise. Uh, Michael Patrick Welch, uh, who writes about comedy, among other things for us, but he writes very well about comedy for us, has written uh, some criticism and also some praise for Dave Chappelle uh, in, in this week's uh, on this week's website. So, Michael, hello.
4: Hello. Hello. All right. So
0: tell us what is going on with the closer. I mean, I, I, I think at this point, most people who are awake have heard about the controversy, but maybe you could, you could sum it all up for us.
4: Yeah. I'm, uh, I have opened this restaurant and I've been working here and cooking and, uh, my primary job is to like talk to all the people who are coming in and, uh, at least like five people have brought this Dave Chappelle special up to me unsolicited along with the people that I've like asked them, Oh, have you watched this? And uh, the controversy and the criticism seems to be uh, the upfront number one thing that uh, people talk about. However, the praise outnumbers the criticism by a hundred to one. It is a pretty interesting disconnect. A lot of media media, people, columnists and stuff immediately got on the internet and wrote these, you know, disappointed reviews, how disappointed they are. And, but if you look on Twitter or you talk to all the people who come into my restaurant, which my restaurant is in new Orleans and, uh, most of my customers are black. So I'm like talking to black people, white people, old people, young people about it. And, uh, in reality, almost no one is bothered by what he's doing at all in my, uh, circumstantial uh, experience with it um, if you go on Twitter and type in Dave Chappelle it'll be like 50 comments about how he's the greatest comedian of all time and then you know one person who's offended that he went too far
0: right and- now he he talks about I mean the, the major controversy here is that he talks about uh, trans people uh, Yeah. And- in a way, in a context that has not really been talked about before. He he sort of stands up for biological sex. I guess J.K. Rowling is 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 just yeah. a prominent a cultural figure, but he but but she's still a literary figure. She's not a performer.
4: So yeah he's she's got, he's spoken about it in like an essay and a couple tweets, you know, and um you know I don't want to get myself in trouble, but she's she's pretty respectful in the way she disagrees with the issue. I know everybody just hates her with a burning passion for saying anything critical about uh, women being women and men being men. Uh, But Dave Chappelle just takes that and explodes it. And, you know, he's like an insult comic. So he's not he's not getting up there trying to be ginger about it the way that I believe uh, Rowling was being he just gets up there and is like, "Well, I'm just going to treat you like any other group that I would make fun of, which is uh, frowned upon to put it mildly."
0: <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I watched the special, and I, you know, I didn't feel that he was anti-trans in any way. I mean, there's a oh. long story at the end about Daphne Dorman, his friend who uh, killed him or herself. Um, you know, and, and he obviously talks about that person with a lot of love. Doesn't he? Doesn't strike me as an as a bigot. He just strikes me as someone who's saying like enough is enough with constructing society around the needs and desires of what is essentially a very small group of people.
4: Yeah. Um, the The thing is that uh, trans people have rules about how you're allowed to talk about them, and if you break those rules, then you're a hateful bigot. And he is not a hateful bigot uh, by his own rules and by what most people would consider. You know, you or me would listen to it and think, well, that's not that bad. He like made fun of Jewish people and that's not necessarily cool either. But, you know, Joan Rivers and Chris Rock and Paul Moon, those people go in on everybody and you're not allowed to do that the way that you would with any other group. I mean, somebody made a list of like all the groups that he attacked. I don't even want to say attacked because to me, he's just kidding, you know, but he made fun of, he he went in on all the groups, but the only one that's causing controversy is trans people, you know, but like I said, they have their own rules of engagement. Well,
0: yeah, I think you're right in some ways, but I don't think it's trans people who have their own rules of engagement. It's activists who are busy on social media um, yeah. and, and who have bylines. I I think that um, – Gay people and trans people can laugh at themselves just like anybody else. I mean, there's a sensitive corner of the progressive left that is ready to cancel everybody. And um, I thought your piece was very even handed. And the, I feel like the job of a critic is not to condemn uh, right. as, as much and as it sucks. is to criticize and review and consider things. I mean, and I, you know, I mean, you know, you weren't uncritical of Chappelle and I don't think he's a perfect comedian. I actually don't find him as funny as I find some other comedians. I think he's extremely self-absorbed as he's heavy. Like I'm a huge
4: so grandstanding in that yes he's
0: yeah. so self self aggrandizing yeah, and I it, don't it, it takes away from the comedy because he's so self self-referential he's so self-absorbed it's like kind of a dick you know what i mean like i don't i understand that he's been through the ringer but he put himself through a lot of that ringer and there's a lot of like me 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 i don't like it you know
4: no, i don't either i like cockiness when people are cocky it, i find it funny and entertaining and it can be done well, but uh, he mentions walking away from the $50 million and every special that he makes. And, you know, he calls himself the goat and this one and then like pauses so that everybody can clap. I, I, it doesn't ruin it for me, but he's not very good at using cockiness uh, as, yeah. a, as an entertainment tool. Um,
0: he walks away from $50 million right into another $50 million. No,
4: like, yeah, some shit you know like he got 20 20 a piece for all of these is what i am am understanding but but i mean that's small to me uh all i can say is that as a fan he's not as good as he used to be but he's still i mean he's still pretty awesome and you know obviously he's been doing that since he was a teenager so it's like there's no way around acknowledging how good he is at it and uh you know it's just like i've watched so many bands Guns N' Roses made one good album, and then just everything else they've ever done sucks. It's like it just happens, you know.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, here's the thing about Chappelle on this special. It's not a per. It is not a perfect work of art. Uh, the closer, by any means, is not the greatest stand-up special of all time, no. um, or even of the year. But what he does is, I think that he finally, like, he really put a big hole in the woke bubble. And I think yeah. I think that what your customers at the restaurant are responding to and what regular people of all types out in the world are responding to is, you know, it's it, they're finally like sta- feeling grateful that someone has spoken up against this very oppressive cultural hierarchy that's being imposed on us and that's dividing people. And I think it's interesting that you know, it's, it's Chappelle, you know, obviously like Tucker Carlson wasn't going to do it. He's too divisive. Yeah. in in
4: I think it might've been Chappelle's last one. He brought up this point, which is kind of good. It might not be the tightest point, but um, along with like poking a hole in it, he's normalizing trans people in a weird twisted kind of way like he's saying, no, you, you don't get left out of being made fun of. Like that's putting you in a special category. But in, in one of the other specials, he said uh, that Daphne, the, his trans uh, friend that he exploits in all of his specials, um, told him that he thought it was funny that Dave Chappelle got a lot of blowback, supposedly, when he did that R. Kelly parody, that piss on you video. Have you ever seen that? Sure. Yeah. it's And it's hilarious. It's so good that people were like, oh, that's terrible. You're normalizing R. Kelly. And he wondered out loud why people don't say that when he makes fun of trans people that he's normalizing them. I could answer that and tell him why that doesn't make sense. But in a way, it does make sense. Like he's treating them like he treats everybody else, you know, Um, poorly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But I mean, to me, it's not poorly. It's like, I mean, Joan Rivers is so much worse. She is so much worse and also like very loving and nobody held it against her. You know, like that's just what they do. I don't necessarily always consider it like shitting on people. You know, it's it's uh
0: I strongly believe that we should continue to criticize and make fun of things. I know it's an outrageous thing to say, uh, but uh, but it's it is uh it's a core principle of mine.
4: It's not lost on me either that I don't belong, that I'm not in a group uh, that gets made fun of. I mean, redheads get made fun of when they're kids. But uh, I do feel like, oh, it's not for me to say how other people should take it uh, since I don't really know how it feels to be like stabbed in the heart by somebody's words. You know, people make.
0: Oh, I do. Oh, I do. As a Jew. Yeah. I know- so I get to, I, you know, it's like I, I I get it and I appreciate it. And, you know, we Jews basically, you know, created uh, stand-up comedy as we know it. So I appreciate what Dave Chappelle is doing. I don't always love the content, but I, I, I'm i glad he's out there like, you know, bursting bubbles. Um. All right. So
4: wait, what did you think of the space Jews joke?
0: I mean, it, I felt like it was kind of a ripoff of Jews in space from from uh, Spaceballs. Oh, oh. No, not from Spaceballs, from History of the World Part 1, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the Jews in space thing at the end. But whatever, I don't care. Space Jews, great.
4: Yeah. I read stuff where they're like, that's going to churn up anti-Semitism. Do you feel that way when you read it? Like, uh-oh, you know, it's going to, don't know. feel.
0: Li- I don't feel like anti-Semitism needs any churning up. I think it's already here. Uh, yeah. Might as well make fun of ourselves uh, before it's too late. All right. Yeah. Uh, all right, Michael Welch has written about Dave Chappelle and the special The Closer in this week's uh, Book and Film Globe. You can check it out at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. It's a great piece. Michael, good luck serving up today's lunch, and uh, hope you can write for us again soon. Thanks, brother. All right, man. Thanks. Finally this week, I'm joined by G.L. Ford, Greg Ford, frequent book and film Globe contributor. He often writes about TV shows, uh, quality TV shows, and he's chosen a very quality TV show to write about uh, on the site this week. The show Made, which is now airing on Netflix and is being eclipsed only by Squid Game in the estimation of Netflix viewers. Uh, Greg, welcome. Hey, Neil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've been watching Made as well, and I gotta say, I love this show. It's um, it's such a a, a gritty and realistic look at poverty in America, and at the struggles of uh, of uh, single parents, particularly women, um, coming out of uh, domestic abuse situations. And it's just the details are just astounding in the in the show. It's just the the level of um, uh, this
2: meticulousness.
1: Well, it's really unrelenting in that respect. Yeah, as far as realistic goes, yes, it does blur into magical realism, like the headers on her welfare forms reading You Are an Unfit Mother or the... Passers by having various, also derogatory uh, statements toward her on their chests and things like that. Right. Um, When she's in court, she hears the
0: judge and the lawyers say things like legal, 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 legal this, legal that. So it just, but, but, you know, and I feel like those touches make the show even more effective because it shows you how absurd and how, um, how oppressive and Kafkaesque the situation of somebody really caught in the poverty cycle is.
1: Yes. And she's totally trapped and she really, she, she has help, but all of this help she has comes with conditions of one sort or another, whether it's personal or the system one, you know, she goes to the shelter and she has to pee in a cup. You know, she goes to the welfare office and everything, everything is just um, predicated on her fitting into some mold. And yeah, she, has, she has to
0: jump through a lot of hoops. So this is a young woman who has a daughter. She's played by Margaret Qualley, who is a terrific actress. Um, she uh, first came to our attention in the Quentin Tarantino movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She played the the hippie chick who Brad Pitt gives a ride to. Uh, she's uh, but she uh, she's been in some other stuff and she is she is just really good here. And she um, she's actually Andy McDowell's daughter and in in real life and in, also in the in the show Andy McDowell plays her mother.
1: Yeah, and her mother is a real trip in this show and acts rather like she's tripping the whole time. She's kind of an old art art hippie. Oh, yeah, an old art hippie is a good way to put it. You know, she's living out on a trailer and she, you know, doesn't really care what anybody thinks about her. She just wants to do her art and uh, screw the man. And whether that's literal or figurative, she's got her young, maybe Australian boyfriend to whom she's, handed over control of all her assets and uh, maybe that's not the wisest move but even she she's not disinterested herself she's less demanding than other people that alex comes into contact with but you know she's not an easy person to deal with
0: yeah and so there's just all these obstacles that alex who played by margaret Qualley, has to deal with and you know the show is just is, is just uh I find it very gripping, and you know, and it helps that um, you know Alex's the her baby daddy. They're not they're not married. Is you know he's she's got a drinking problem, and he's violent, but he's not. Uh, a one-dimensional monster. You know, the show presents him as intelligent. It presents him as as somewhat empathetic and caring, but he has a lot of problems, and he is still an abuser. So it's an interesting portrait of an abuser because, you know, he's not like a a, um, stereotypical abuser.
1: Yeah, that's not all there is to him. He would like to try and make it work, but he just doesn't really know how he's from a broken home. He's from a broken home himself. And
0: the show really shows really well, the sort of cycle of poverty. And he's actually, I think this actor is quite terrific too. He's played by Nick Robinson, who um, was the lead in the movie, like a gay high school love story, love Simon. And was also in a teacher, which was on Hulu, which was sort of a um, high school teacher having an affair with a student drama that I actually thought was very good as well, but he's not sympathetic, but He's a well-rounded character, and there's a lot of really well-rounded characters in the show. I mean, what I thought was interesting is the main characters are all white, but there's a lot of very interesting um, black and Latino characters sort of surrounding them, both wealthy and not wealthy.
1: Yes, there's Regina, for whom she cleans, uh, who at first doesn't even seem to know her, but as the show goes on, they become something like friends. I mean, there's going to be a barrier between them, whether that's class or race. The show doesn't spell it out, but it's not really the show's job to spell that out, I don't think. I'm I'm curious, Neil, how far into the show are you at this point? Now, I've only seen three episodes, you
0: know, enough to talk to you about it. Right. Like, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. I know there's some twists and turns coming. It's a 10 episode show. And, I, you know, and it's, um, you know, I just I admire uh, a nice slice of um, social realism, I guess. And uh, I I feel like, you know, made pushes a lot of those buttons uh, for me.
1: Well, it's really well done in that respect. I didn't write this in my piece on it, but in the end, I find it pretty bleak, really. I mean, it's exceptionally well done, but she's just casting off relationship after relationship. There's her old friend who she stays with. You know, he claims again and again that he doesn't have any romantic interests in her. There are no conditions to her staying with at his place and driving his spare car, but then there are conditions there too. So there's so much for that relationship. She shed so much of her life to try to be herself, and I find that kind of sad. But maybe maybe that is part of the realism.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't I don't think the show is meant to be. Uh, it's not a happy story. Um, but it feels very real to me. The real story behind Made is that someone lived a life similar to this or based on this and then wrote a book and it got turned into a Netflix series. So you can kind of take some hope in that.
1: Yeah, you know, my wife actually, well, she didn't read the book, but she listened to the audio and she said there are a lot of similarities, but they certainly took some liberties with it. Well,
0: in any case, Made is on Netflix. It's really good. You should watch it and you should read Greg's
1: review in Book and Film Globe. And I agree with all of those points.
0: Right on. All right, Greg, we'll talk to you soon. All
1: right, Now, Cheers.
0: All right. Thanks to Greg Ford for talking to me about Made. I really do like this show. I hope you get a chance to check it out. It's kind of depressing, but it is worth your time. Also, many thanks to Matt Brown for talking to me about the Fauci documentary, to Sharon Vane, as always and to Michael Welch, who is a great chef of New Orleans and a great reviewer of stand-up comedy specials. This has been the Book and Film Globe Week in Review Podcast. I have been and always am Neil Pollack, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. In addition to all the stuff we talked about this week, we featured some movie reviews, including a review of the new Halloween Kills movie, so I thought it would be appropriate, given the season, given the opening to play john carpenter's original theme music from the original halloween very creepy very good music don't be scared michael myers is not waiting outside your door but dr fauci might be mask up stay safe talk to you soon